Welcome to Limitless, the blind beginnings podcast where seeing things differently inspires limitless possibilities. This podcast is being brought to you by Blind Beginnings, an organization based in Vancouver, Canada, that supports children and youth who are blind or partially sighted, along with their families. Limitless was created in order to inform, educate, entertain, and share stories from within the blind and partially sighted community, in order to show the world that the opportunities for those who are blind or partially sighted are truly limitless. And now, it is my pleasure to introduce you to your host, the executive director and founder of Blind Beginnings, Sean Marsley. Welcome back to Limitless, the Blind Beginnings podcast. I'm your host, Sean Marsley, and I'm so excited for today's topic. We are talking about orientation and mobility, which if you're blind or partially sighted, you know what that is. Basically, the field where people teach people who are blind how to navigate, how to know where they are in space and how to move safely through that space. And we have some awesome guests. But before I get to that, I want to introduce my co-host today, Ginny. Welcome back to the podcast, Ginny. Hi, Sean. And I'm excited to be here. Looking forward to talking all things about mobility and orientation. Awesome. So why, why is this topic exciting for you? When I was younger and still now, I always struggled with orientation and mobility, particularly orientation. And I had instructors who would constantly lose patience with me because I wasn't grasping a concept and they would try multiple different things based on what they had been taught. And they were just not able to help me grasp concepts. So naturally they just defaulted to teaching me a route. So that's getting from point A to point B and it just became memorizing. So rather than figuring out what street I'm on, it was just you turn right at the pole here, you cross at this corner here, etc. So I wasn't taught where I was in space. Mm-hmm. And as, as I got older, things became more challenging because I was told that I couldn't travel unless a mobility instructor cleared me for each route I wanted to travel. So that means if I went to an event or if I wanted to just go somewhere, my family or I didn't think it was okay for me to poke around and learn just like other other little kids do. They wander around and, and learn that way. And we never thought that was okay for me to do. Uh, yeah, I think I'll, I'll think I'll stop there for now because we'll get more into it as, as the show progresses. We're focusing mostly on the orientation part of orientation and mobility today, because I feel like a lot of focus is often on the getting, the moving part, the using a white cane, the using a guide dog, the, the moving, and not so much on the orientation. So our first guest, Patricia, who... Uh, welcome back, has been Thank with you. us previously. Yeah, I'm so excited that you're here today. Why is this topic important to you? Um, I guess like Ginny, orientation has always been a struggle for me. So I was born um, three and a half months premature. Um, and I had a 10% chance of survival at, when I was born. And I also had internal brain bleeds when I was born. Um, And looking at it as an adult, you can't say that having a brain bleed wouldn't have led to some kind of 
damaged somewhere. And I think for me, the damage was more neurological. Um, and as such, it has really affected my orientation and knowledge of where I am in space and where positionally things are in relation to me. And it's just, yeah, been, been a, a constant struggle as long as I could remember, basically. And, and O&M has been heartbreakingly challenging ever since. And I think um, has been a bit of a barrier. My, my lack of orientation has been a bit of a barrier to accomplishing things that I think I should and could do. Well, for me, growing up with a degenerative eye condition, when I started having mobility, it was learning cane technique and, you know, I still had some vision. So it was literally learning how to use a cane and I didn't, I could use the bit of vision that I had to orient. Like I could see landmarks close up to help me know where I was. So I actually was never taught the orientation part because over time my vision decreased and now it's really low, but I no longer have mobility. So I'm just kind of out in the world, figuring it out. <laughs> so this is like super fascinating to me, how you teach somebody to orient to where they are. And I'm super excited to, to welcome my friend, Kim, who is an orientation and mobility specialist and a professor who teaches orientation and mobility specialists. Welcome, Kim. Thanks, John. Great to be here. Uh, this is very exciting. Uh, orientation is a fascinating topic to me as well. And um, uh, Ginny and Patricia and you make excellent points about what goes into being able to have that flexibility of travel, being able to just decide, no, oh, today I'm gonna go from my work to get ice cream down the street because I heard about the shop and feel confident doing that. Um, and part of it is the teaching, part of it is natural uh, sense of orientation and part of it is um, how consistently and how early uh, we're working on it as well as the opportunities to move around. Judy made an excellent point about her parents not being comfortable letting her poke around like other kids. And that's, that plays into it as well. So can you explain better than I did what an orientation and mobility specialist does and maybe what's involved in their training? Sure. You did a great job. You gave the, <laughs> you gave a good uh, definition of what orientation and the mobility part is. So basically the mobility is the use of the cane or the dye dog or residual vision to get from point A to point B efficiently and safely. And then the orientation part is knowing where you are in space at any point in time and where things are um, in relationship to each other. So where the library is in relationship to the school or um, and having that sense of self in that space as you move around and change positions. Um, orientation mobility specialists go through both of those components. They learn about both of those components and they have um, experiential um, courses where they're under blindfold, um, even if they have low vision or they're blind themselves, we usually make everybody just do under blindfold um, to get that experience a little bit. You don't really get a sense of what it is like to be blind, but you learn how to use the cane. You learn how to interact with the environments non-visually so that you have a better perspective teaching people from a non-visual uh, point of view. And so we work really hard on um, O&M specialists becoming really good observers of the environment and the features of the environment that help or hinder movement um, and ways to use our hearing and our other senses in combination with any residual vision if a person has it um, 
to, to be as independent as they want to be moving through the environment. Um, they also learn kind of the developmental uh, aspect of orientation mobility and what's important to work with with kids at a really young age moving through if they're not um, like you, Sean, had a, a degenerative condition. So you had that visual perspective for a while um, and that that plays in differently in terms of how you are able to orient. Um, in fact, I always rely on you to keep us in, when I'm hanging out with you, <laughs> keep us on track because your natural orientation is, is better than my own. Um, so yeah, and so the, the, the students go through learning all the king techniques, learning about orientation, and they do a lot of work practicing teaching each other, and then they do an internship to really work with uh, actual people and to, to get that experience. Um, at UBC, we have a, a certificate program that people go through to become uh, certified orientation mobility specialists. Okay, so the students have to be blindfolded for part of their training. Uh which part's harder for them, the orientation or the mobility or both? Or like, I feel like that would be an interesting thing to observe in itself. It is. It's it's very interesting to, particularly the, because I have individuals in my program who have low vision or um, just a little bit of residual vision or are blind. And so they, they react differently under blindfold, although some of them find it even more challenging because if they have a little patch of vision or a little bit of vision that they've been relying on, putting the blindfold on actually changes the whole way of travel. And so it's very interesting to see how people progress. And one of the things that we really work on is when people first put the blindfold on, they tend to become really hesitant and um, their pace slows down, their gait changes. And so we work on getting them back to like a natural pace and comfort level and gait and that's not something that someone who's had a visual impairment all their lives would experience, but mm -hmm. um, they do get a sense of uh, the progression. And it, it, it is something that someone who suddenly loses their vision might also experience. So, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. The, that whole just getting used to not being able to see is going to impact them on lots of different levels, emotionally too, fear and apprehension and where it wouldn't necessarily for someone who's born without vision. Yeah, exactly. And so mobility, everybody's starting from point one with mobility if they weren't already a cane traveler or a dog guide user in the program. And the orientation actually is interesting to watch because it does vary from student to student. And some of that has to do with their natural sense of orientation coming in. And then when you take the site away, if you have a better sense of orientation and you you have a good mental map that vision had supported, obviously, um, those people have less trouble keeping track of where they're at and being more flexible than some of the other students who have to learn other strategies because they're not as naturally oriented. And so they struggle a bit more. I feel like this is a good segue, Patricia. You shared a podcast on Facebook, which I listened to, which got me so excited to have this conversation. Can you talk a little bit about what you discovered and learned about this recently? Um, sure. So <laughs> I guess it was more of an affirmation as opposed to a learning. Um, so I, I guess for a bit of context, I'm a psychology major um, and I graduated with my BA, I guess it would be 11 years ago now. Um, but as part of your psychology degree, you typically take a course in neuropsychology. Um, so I took a course in introduction to neuropsychology and you learn about functional MRIs. So basically taking a scan of your brain and seeing the structures in your brain and um, if they 
light up when you do certain tasks and that type of thing. And as I kind of spoke to earlier with um, brain bleeds, I thought there was something neurological going on. And that kind of made me think, I really want to get a diagnosis. And the way that I explained my orientation to people is when I'm being oriented to a new environment, it feels like somebody's just dropped me off on Mars and said, okay, here's what you need to know. Now go do it. And it, I, I struggle to process the information that is coming in and to filter it out and, and to sequence it and make sense of it. And it feels oftentimes like I, I can be learning a route, for example, and blank out, like completely blank out. And it feels like somebody's taken a puzzle that has been put together, essentially shaken it up and then dumped it on the ground and said, okay, here's all the pieces now put it back together. Uh, and in this podcast that I shared, the um, person who, who conducted the podcast is an orientation mobility instructor from Australia uh, who connected with a neuropsychologist um, and studied with him and was very interested in spatial cognition and described this concept that I've been articulating for years. And to, to Jenny's point, my O&M experience has been very much, oh, you just have to practice more. You'll get these skills if you practice more. Um, you just have to repeat this more. And repetition is great because I find that for me, um, I can, once, once the root becomes kinesthetic, I can then visualize it. So first I, my body has to go through it, but if, until it becomes kinesthetic, it doesn't really mean much. Um, and from a psychological perspective, they always say you can remember seven to nine things plus or minus two. And that's always stuck with me because in my navigation, I always feel like I'm having to remember a lot. And like I said, you can only remember five to seven things or seven to nine things plus or minus two. So that's between five and 11 things. By step number 14, you're not going to remember anymore, no matter what the landmark is. Um, you'll notice the landmark there, but what does it mean and, and where does it come in? And so just this, the, the podcast kind of went into that and, and it didn't necessarily answer my questions, but it affirmed everything that I've ever experienced. And it almost made me cry. Um, and when I posted it to Facebook, a friend of mine excitedly wrote and said, finally, somebody believes us. Um, because it, it feels like a very lonely place. Um, and you often feel trapped inside your own body, um, except you're aware of it, <laughs> which makes it even worse. So it was, uh, I, I don't know that I learned anything new, but it was very affirming. Um, and I, I since was moved to, so how I came upon the podcast was actually through a technology podcast that I was listening to and they happened to have her on. And I was cued by the words mental mapping and spatial cognition. And so I had to listen. Um, and I wrote the creators of the tech podcast and said, I really want to connect with this person because she 
had even asked for some listeners to come forward. Um, and I have since connected with her and she is in the process of producing a book uh, with um, this neuropsychologist and has asked if I would be interested in contributing. So oh, even if I can cool. provide, you know, something to an O&M instructor in the future, you know, I, I, I'd be more than happy to do that. And I, I would love to be able to speak to O&M instructors about, you know, things that they should look out for, um, that like anything, cause I don't think kids can articulate it. Um, and, and, and I'd even love to know more about the O&M process itself so that I could help maybe change it from the ground up. Cause I think there's, there, there's work that needs to be done in that space. <laughs> As you can see, I'm pretty passionate about this. Well, interesting. That's so great that you connected with her. And when I invited Kim to be part of this podcast and, and told her about the this O&M person in Australia, of course she knows her and <laughs> <laughs> has stayed at her house and has done this test. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, yeah. Kim, what do you think about all of this? Yeah. Well, first of all, Patricia makes an excellent point about how much a person can remember and it's true that if your spatial orientation is something you struggle with, it's actually makes it harder to even travel a route. Like even if you're just going from point A to point B the same way, if you have to remember all those extra details, um, it can be very detrimental. And so the more that someone's able to understand their space, the less they have to remember exacts, right? So they could say, oh, I just have to go three blocks and then turn north and go, you know, and so it makes the travel um, less of a memory load than as Patricia was describing that she has to, has to go through sometimes. But yeah, I um, was in Australia on my sabbatical doing some presentations and Lil invited me to stay at her house when I went just over to um, check out Melbourne and see what it was like. And um, she's a great woman, very, very, very energetic about O&M. And uh, she said, oh, why don't you try the test? <laughs> so she pulled it out, put a blindfold on me. And basically what the test is, she probably described it in her podcast, but they, she guides your finger. So there's a series of tactile maps that are, get increasingly more complex. She guides your finger along the map and then you draw what you remember from that, that movement through the tactile map. And then based on how you do, she does it again or again and sees how many attempts it takes you to get the map correct, like all the turns. And so there's more turns and more angles as the maps get increasingly um, harder. Now, I, on a range of one to 10 in terms of spatial orientation, naturally it may be a five, four, so I'm sort of in the middle. So we had a good laugh because um, they always talk about orientation mobility specialists to be really well oriented, but, um, I'm of the um, opinion that if you have good strategies to compensate, you can still be a good orientation mobility specialist and in some ways better because you understand the struggles. Whereas if you're really oriented and you don't. Um, so anyway, she did this test with me and we started to laugh because she had to repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. <laughs> and she's like, really? You, you missed that turn still? <laughs> so um, <laughs> It was, it was very interesting to me too. And it, it did, like Patricia was saying with the podcast, kind of confirm the glitches I have in my own spatial orientation that I have to compensate. And because I 
uh, use vision um, sighted, I can compensate by visual landmarks and looking around, which provides an advantage. And when you do have those spatial orientation struggles. Well, yeah, it's, it's funny because so many people in my life have laughed about, oh, you're giving me directions. You know, they're driving me home and I'll tell them. So you're going to need to turn right up here after the whatever. And they're like, oh, it's so funny. You're telling, you're giving me directions and you're blind. Well, just because I'm blind, I, I can remember that there's a church across from my complex and that's where you turn right. You know, like it's, it's just knowledge in my head. It's not, it's not that I can see where we are necessarily. Um, but I would imagine if orientation is hard, maybe that would be hard too. Like it's not, it's not about being blind. It's about the mental mapping ability. Exactly. So you might remember there's a church across from your complex, but you may not be able to recognize where that church is in relationship to where you are on the street in the car. Right. Which direction we're coming from or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. I had a, um, I was staying um, on the island for a time and the person I was staying with, uh, her mental mapping was to the point where if we were driving in a car, she could tell you what street we were on and she could tell you she could tell you where to go. And I, I always found that super amazing to, to see someone do that because I know as soon as I get in a car, I blank out. I don't really focus anymore um, where I'm going. So it's, 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 that is interesting. Some people are stronger at mental mapping than others, but then there must also be a learning component as well. So how do you teach somebody this stuff? How do you teach mental mapping to somebody who, has never seen? There's a variety of strategies. And again, knowing like Patricia and Ginny were talking about, knowing what a person's kind of level starting out as is important and something we probably should teach O&M specialists to do more of or do better at. Um, because some people will do, will do like auditory mapping where they walk through an environment and they, you know, they record and order the streets that are coming up and then they can listen to it and piece it together. But from my experience, those are people that already have a decent level of spatial orientation because you have to take linear information and make it into this more spatial mental map. It's kind of like the people who can take GPS telling you where to go next and create that map in their head. I can't do that. I have to look at the full map and then I can get a good spatial picture of it. So one thing that if we often don't do enough of with adults uh, that are doing orientation mobility, but um, I advocate for when I teach um, up and coming O&M specialists and to work with kids early on is creating tactile maps and getting so that you're getting more of that bird's eye view picture and you can add things to as you learn them and, and slowly kind of build a knowledge of space, whether it be their neighborhood or, or somewhere else. And so that's another, another way to do it. Um, and as Patricia mentioned, practice is obviously a component um, with lots of repetition. And there still will be some people who struggle. Um, and so we also teach, I tend to teach students I work with in O&M that struggle to have some backup strategies, like what do you, like the problem solving about what you do when you get lost, you know, and um, being able to ask the right questions of people to get yourself back on track should something happen. Um, writing down 
key components that you can go back and look at that should you um, forget your steps if you have to be more step oriented um, until your mental map gets better. So there's, there's a variety of ways and I think we're still learning more and more about other ways to try to um, develop this capacity. So Patricia and Jenny, how do you feel about tactile maps? Do they help? I was going to talk about that because I know Patricia and I have discussed this a bit. And um, I think, I don't know if you can talk to this as well. I think our, our, we're a little bit opposite in this way because for me, I've always had the problem <clears throat> that instructors aren't using, as Kim said, enough tactile mapping and laying things out for me because when I was doing Simone M training, they were like, here's a T intersection and here's a plus intersection and you're going to cross this and you're going to go like this. And I remember I was like, what does that mean? For someone who has been totally blind since birth, a T intersection means nothing. For someone who has a little bit of residual vision, they might know what a T looks like. They might be able to see where the cars are starting and stopping. But for me, who hasn't seen something like that and who isn't a driver, how am I supposed to know? And I remember really advocating for maps and and saying that I, I I can't I can't visualize it in my brain and I don't know if this is psychological but how are you supposed to visualize something if you can't see it and I remember actually being on the phone with Sean and was like can you explain to me what a T intersection is because I just wasn't getting it so for me personally I love maps they can't be super detailed though I just, I don't need like a house and I don't need like grass. I just need lines for, yeah, I, I just need lines for the sidewalks and roads because I have had people give me super detailed maps and it's, it's, it's not effective. Did, did my description work? Did you understand? <laughs> um, I can't even remember what I said. <laughs> uh, you were like, it's a line connected by a line, but again, it's like, yeah. How does that look we, in, it's really in relation to me? Over the phone. Like, I feel like being able to feel <laughs> what a T looks like and then talk that through would be the easiest way to explain Also, it. another thing, though, is you're looking at a map, which is in front of you on the table. But then you're now then you're now going on the street and you're walking over it. So now you're in a completely different relation to the map. And I find that also tricky. So I, I don't know if that's even possible, but walk the intersection. Okay, here's one end of the T. We're going to the other. And now we're going to the other. Because mm -hmm. when it's sitting in front of you, you're not actually walking on top of it because then it's kind of underneath you. Does that make yeah. sense? Well, yeah, I'm thinking, you're, don't you have to use spatial orientation even to transfer from the map into real life motion? Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. That's a great example of, there's research that shows pairing the map with the experience. And this links to what Patricia said before about the kinesthetic sense, making it easier once she's done it enough to get that kinesthetic sense, it brings it together better and it's easier for that transfer. So that's definitely a component. Yeah. What about you, Patricia? How are mental uh, maps or not mental? What are they called? <laughs> Tactile maps. Yeah. Oh, it, <laughs> absolutely atrocious. Absolutely atrocious. Um, and, and this, it, for me, it doesn't just transfer over to O&M. It's everything. I think, uh, cause I grew up in the nineties. <laughs> uh, so th things were less, I guess, advanced technologically as well than, than they are now. So uh, my exposure to even just tactile graphs probably wasn't until high school. 
And I find transferring from 2D to 3D and even just seeing in 2D very confusing because to me, it's just lines and circles. And you guys were talking about a T intersection. I know that a T is a cross, or at least that's how I envisioned it in my head. And I, and I, I know like I can bring the visual tactile image of a cross, but then again, like Ginny mentioned, the transferring of that to an actual physical space, it's like, well, what, what does that look like? How, mm-hmm. how does that connect? Um, but yeah, even just looking at a map doesn't do much for me because uh, firstly, my tracking also sucks. Like I'm, I'm amazed I can read Braille as well as I can. And I think that was probably also I, something I must have struggled with when I was young and first learning to read. Um, but yeah, my ability to track, I find I have to really concentrate. And Kim may actually remember this because I participated in a graphing workshop with her. <laughs> and like just the concept of, okay, I'm going to show you a tactile graph. Now produce that in whatever way you like. I couldn't, I couldn't even begin to like, I was like, what, what do what? Like, I, and I don't know if you saw a blank look on my face, Kim, but I felt very blank at that moment. Yeah, that was the one where we um, added movement to them, right? Yes. Was that helpful given your, your experience with kinesthetic? It, it wasn't, it wasn't because again, I didn't know, I was like, well, what, what, a, I, I couldn't visualize the graph in my head. I couldn't even get to that point. And, and that's actually something that Lil was saying. And I, I think, so Lil had mentioned that there's very, um, there's extremes of, of ability to mental map. And she referred to a young child who literally was not able to mental map even a room. And so I, I don't think I'm that bad, but I'm, I'm kind of somewhere towards the lower end where I guess a good example would be, um, I, I live in a relatively small apartment. It took me a week to memorize, well, memorize, but to, to kinesthetically memorize my apartment. And what I had to do was put different landmarks in different rooms. And I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't classify it as counting steps because I wasn't doing that, but I was basically pacing out the distance. And there's probably a, an O&M term for that, but basically when you walk and you've walked a certain amount and you kind of know, Oh, I've gone too far. Oh, I've gone too. I'm not quite there yet. That type of thing. Um, I, I would, I would literally judge the distances between the kitchen and my bedroom and then the kitchen and the living room and the kitchen. And I would literally go to a main starting point and essentially pace out where I was. And I had, um, I turned the fan on in the bathroom and I knew that I'd know where the kitchen was because of where the fridge was. And then I had one genre of music playing in my bedroom and I had another genre of music (laughs) playing in the living room. And I literally spent half an hour doing that Mm. for probably two or three days in a row. And that's a great compensation strategy. Um, those are some of the things that we try to teach when people do have struggling. So that, that was, that was a great way to do it. Um, but yeah. it's hard to do that in real life, yes. like yeah. at the grocery store or the bank or around <laughs> your city. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. I remember we were trying to look for a chair, Patricia, um, because that was real life. And music yeah, do you, do you want to do you want to talk about this experience? So yeah, because Ginny said how bad it. I, I think it was more like how bad is your spatial orientation? It can't I, be that bad. I was trying to be encouraging <laughs> as a supportive friend. 
<laughs> Sounds like it. Yeah. yeah um, <laughs> but we were at a convention and I remember there was music playing. So we, both of us were just kind of dancing around and. So it, I, was a large, I, it was the largest room, right? Yeah. Was, it was, was this a dance, dance or were you just dancing around? <laughs> <laughs> it, it was, it was to give it context. It was in a large sort of one of those hotel ballroom style. Okay. Banquets, yeah. And uh, we were, we were, we didn't go to the, up at the front where everyone else was dancing because I knew that I wouldn't be able to get back. And I think Patricia knew that she wouldn't be able to get back. But so we, we stood up for my chairs and we were kind of just like, you know, in a, just dancing in a circle and kind of dancing around. And there was music playing at one end. And I remember when we were done dancing, Patricia was like, where's our chair? And I was like, oh, it's right here. Because for me, like when I turn in a circle, like, I was able to use the music and kind of envision things turning in a circle because it was a small space mm-hmm. in, in relative, like around us. But I remember even finding the chair, things like that are, 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 are still challenges. So you aren't able to, to really do that in real life because like Patricia said, it took three days. It took, it took a while. And if you need to find your seat that quick, you might not be able to do yeah, that. Like she, she, she literally, she's like, can I spin you around? And I said, Sure, I guarantee you. Yeah, I did some tests on her. (laughs) And she's like, you have no idea where you are, do you? I'm like, I don't. And and we were literally, I would say, what, 10 steps away from the chair? Yeah, I think I spun you around and I was like, okay, I'm going to twirl you around and I want you to envision everything spinning in the room with you. And I think I did that. And you did find your chair, but it it did take you a couple, it, it did take you a little bit. So Patricia, now that you know your apartment, do yeah. you ever get disoriented yes. in your home? You do. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So even and though it's it's sort of mapped for you, you can still oh get yeah. Disoriented. And and it, it's scary. Like it'll happen. I I've had it where I've come home from work and I've gotten out of the elevator and been in the hallway, and I'm like I, I don't know where I am. And I, and I literally will have to go and I'll get dizzy too. Like it'll make me feel dizzy and I have to go off to the side and sort of stand there and, and think, okay, like I can't even think what's, because that's the question that a lot of people ask you then when you get disoriented, right? What, what do you see around you? And you know, mm-hmm. what can you, use, what can you use to reorient? And in those moments for me, those things are just objects. Like people will be like, do you see the table? It's like, well, yeah, I see the table. Well, where's this in relation to the table? Well, I don't know. Like, I just see a table. Like, right. and then I, and then I get very frustrated because it's like, my brain is asking, I, I, I can't compute what I'm seeing. So going back to the elevator to just retrace your steps from yeah, there. Which I've done. Does that sometimes help? that not, you not, uh, I usually have to give myself a good, like two or three minutes and just like stand and, and yeah. Yeah. Reground yeah. yourself. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I think Lil said that like 85% of people are basically can mental map and there's like 15% or something that just can't. Yeah. I yeah. don't know if I'm remembering that right. Yeah. It was something like that. Yeah. And I, I'm probably in the 15, 20% who I, I don't want to say I can't cause I can. Um, but like, it, it, I mean, blind people that I know, like friends of mine will actually laugh at me and they're like, Oh, you're having a bad disorder, a bad orientation day. Aren't you? And I'll, I'll just accept it because there's nothing you can do at points, but just laugh at yourself because it's, I don't think it's something that will ever go away for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just, you know, you, you push through 
the anxiety and the the struggle because it just it's it, it, it just is it's it's a part of me and I have to cope with it, um, which is why I think um, structured discovery, which I discovered mm-hmm. 10, 11 years ago now, is has been such a huge thing for me. I, I, I'm not certified and I've never trained with anyone certified. I would love to. Uh, so I'm kind of self-taught and going based off literature that I read. But the act of um, learning about your environment through exploration and asking yourself, like I'll I'll question myself on things or, or try and, you know, find cues in the environment as opposed to learning a route, but just even starting from a starting point. Okay. You're going to, you're in this unfamiliar space. What can you um, ascertain from this unfamiliar space? And then I just start naming off objects or picking out things that I observed in my, in that environment. And then, from that point, start piecing it together um, because I find I'm a more active participant in that space at that point. And I'm being forced to put those pieces together as opposed to having it being brought to me, which I think is more of a conventional approach. Yeah, I agree. I think structured discovery, I, I I was fortunate to have the opportunity to learn that. And I just want to put out, I did not learn with a certified instructor so um I just before I say anything about it but um I remember when I was first learning it it was very challenging and I I spent four months learning it. it was it was very challenging because for me being told to poke around when I've been kind of conditioned by people and and instructors to kind of say no like that's not what you do you learn a to b was very hard to unlearn and i'm not it's it's very less textbook in the sense of it's more you are kind of your leader and and i really like that but what i found for myself is by the time that i was done my program which was about four months i was just just starting to get it I remember walking and they asked me they're like what street is the next street and I was able to to name it and it was starting to click but that was after you know that was only the beginning stages of it and that was after four four months and I and I still feel more confident navigating uh, the island where I was at than navigating the the place that I have lived for 20 21 years in the that both of you have found some success with that technique shows that you do probably have the capacity to build a mental map because that's basically what you're doing. You're taking the yeah. mm-hmm. you're together and making a mental map. And so adding that kinesthetic, adding that ownership, um, the more active engagement. Um, and that's kind of when I was talking about tactile maps that I like to do too, is that I like the student to actually create that map with me because it is more active. It is actually more mm-hmm. experiential. Um, so that, that's a, that's a positive Patricia in terms of having some mental mapping. <laughs> oh yeah. It, 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 like I said, it completely changed my life. And I, I think I, uh, it, there needs to be a balance. I think, I think in, in sort of future O&M, um, thought processes, I, I think there needs to, I think to your point, uh, Kim, you know, doing an assessment of where people's orientation is at. And if the orientation is less, uh, 
if, if, if students have less of an ability to orient, to kind of look at doing a combination approach and, and doing sort of a structured discovery along with the conventional way of, of O&M. And I think, you know, it's important to have those basic techniques down. So if I hadn't already been trained in O&M all my life, I wouldn't have been able to apply that concept to sort of more of a exploratory approach. But I think encouraging kids to just explore their environment as opposed to having that sort of concept of the world being brought to you. Yeah. And, and, and that can be more of, you know, enticing a kid, like you find out what they're interested in and then branch off of the, the interests or, you know, I, I don't know exactly what it looks like, but I, I, I would love to, to delve into that and, and to yeah, and enhance it. To um, yeah. Build on what you said there's this, this idea of conventional versus the exploratory. And it's not really the case in terms of what we teach in the O&M programs. We, we teach both. But I think what happens often in the real world is that people rush in and say, oh, this kid needs to get to class. So we're just going to teach them how to get from, and then they forget about the orientation part. They forget mm-hmm. about needing to provide those extra experiential the expo- exploration, allowing the kid to be a kid, right? And we talk a lot about that in my program because I do think, I, I take your point, it is something that's not um, emphasized attention to. And like should, yeah. for example, you have started as a little bit, little baby in a little, a little room, like we call it, where we have things hanging down as babies can explore and develop spatial orientation by accidentally hitting things. Like perhaps had that all happened, you know, very developmentally ongoing, maybe you would have a little less struggle, you know, now. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I feel like it's the equivalent of glancing around the room. Like Mm -hmm. I always say the best way for me to figure out a space is to just let me go feel my way around and figure out what's all here. It's just that that's not necessarily socially appropriate. (laughs) You know, you go to someone's house, you can't like just wander around touching all their stuff, (laughs) but that does give me a really good indication, but I'm able to piece together like, okay, the first corner I'm, there's a coffee table over here and there's a plant on it. And now I'm making my way to the left and now I'm at the next corner and like, I'm kind of piecing the room together as I go so I feel like I'm using mental mapping too you are yeah yeah Yeah. I think also too um I'm not you know I I like both I like what we're calling quote conventional and uh structured discovery because there are times when we'll need to learn roots but I think another way that structured discovery is helpful I know like you know when I'm learning a root I just know the root if I you know veer off that root or like Kim said, I want to go grab ice cream with a couple of friends after work. If I don't have structured discovery, I not only will I not be able to go get ice cream, but if I veer off my route, I'm like, okay, well, I, these are things I haven't seen before. And I think teaching a kid and teaching adults like to to actually veer off a route and see what's there will actually maybe help them in in backtracking and getting back on route once they know other things that are around them. Yeah, exactly. I like to call mm-hmm. it the sinkhole activity. I used to tell the kids I worked with when I was in the K through 12, oh, there's a huge sinkhole in the, <laughs> in the sidewalk. We can't go this way today. <laughs> yeah, alternate routes, there might be construction. And I, I never learned that as a kid, you know, if there was construction or or even at, in in school, if, if things were being painted off, it's like, okay, well, we'll guide you to class today. Mm. But, you know, what is that teaching the kid, right? So I just think that, you know, a combo approach would be, would be yeah. brilliant. Yeah. 
So Kim, you mentioned the little room. I'm just thinking if there are any parents listening, you know, what are some things that they could do with their kids early on to encourage the orientation or the mental mapping skill? Yeah. First and foremost is what Patricia and Ginny both talked about is letting your kid explore, you know, doing what you can to lower your parent protective <laughs> senses a little bit and, and letting them explore. Um, another way to, to start is to create a defined space where the kids' toys are located. So it's kind of like taking the room and shrinking it down. Um, a little room is like an actual contraption that you put over like an infant where they can just kind of randomly move their arms and legs and hit things that, that make noise or have good texture. Um, and then over time, they start to learn where different things are because you see the kid going for their favorite thing because then they're starting to learn the location. But with older kids or toddlers, you can do that in a bigger space. Basically, you expand it out, but it's not the whole room where maybe it's a play mat area. And then the some toy bins are on one side of that mat and something else is on the other side of that map. And they start to have to become, to find their own favorite toys that are located within that space versus it, like the problem we often have with things just showing up for kids that people bring too much to them. <laughs> they, mm -hmm. they don't have to do it themselves. And so um, allowing that exploration, giving them the hands-on um, are great ways. Um, and kind of balancing parents as well as teachers. We're really good at giving lots and lots of description, but you have to be careful about the memory load again. Like you also have to have some quiet time for them to just explore and take it in and then talk about it after. Like, so there, there needs to be kind of a balance. Sometimes we just kind of whiz through a, a place and we're labeling things, but we don't allow the time to actually explore it, which means the concept's not actually being developed. Like, so a kid might pass by and his hand might touch the leaf of a plant. The parent says, oh, that's a plant and they keep moving. But they didn't really get the concept of that plant, the whole plants. Like maybe it's just really big, tall plant and all they touched was the leaf. So slowing down, taking time for those really rich explorations of things as well will help. Yeah, I feel like that's relevant as an adult too. When you're in a new space, I'm, I'm generally paying attention to like, where are the bathrooms and maybe where is the coffee shop <laughs> in a hotel or something. And all the other stuff is like, not important to me right now. I just know that those are two things I'm going to want to be able to find or like the entrance to the room that I need to go back to and in reference to all the other things. So less is more sometimes for sure. Yeah. And that's where the, the route travel comes in handy, right? Because you only need it for a short period of time. You don't need to necessarily know the whole space unless you're really interested in the decor of the, the sitting area of the hotel lobby. But um, yeah, exactly. So mm -hmm. sometimes that's, that is being efficient. But other yeah. times, especially with the younger kids, efficiency often is at um, in opposition of developing the concepts. Well, and if a child does know how to find their own toys, I'm thinking in the classroom too, like then they also demonstrate that independence to the other kids in the class, right? And they get to feel confident and be capable and, you know, put their own things away and find their, the things they want too. Yeah, exactly. And developing that sense of self-determination and yeah, sense of self and confidence and, and being a part of that community without things just showing up to you. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and I would emphasize to Kim's point, starting that as young as you can. So that by the time they reach kindergarten, they're starting to do essentially, and I think this probably comes up again and again because it, it crosses over in so many areas, but don't lower your expectations. I mean, keep in mind the limits of the child because, um, you know, so I, I tell people, at least now I say, let, let me get lost. Let me try and figure this out. But if you see me really struggling, you'll see my face. Like after five minutes, I don't want to, like, I, I want to get out of this situation mm -hmm. and I'm going to get more frustrated than, than successful. So if you see my face kind of have this, I give up look like this is it, then it's probably too much memory load. And I don't want to know more. And I just want to get to where I need to get to. But overall, keeping in mind the capacity of your child's limits, you know, let them do as much for themselves as they can do and continue to extend that um, expectation based on where they've gone. Yeah, yeah. that's an excellent point because it's we call that in teaching the zone of proximal development where you have to balance the challenge, right? At the point where the kid's at and then add on to it as you go for the, for the success and for that feeling of confidence. Well, I feel that also relates to real life where people see somebody who's blind kind of maybe, maybe I'm off in a corner and I've kind of missed the stairs mm -hmm. and I'm kind of beside the stairs, but I'm working it out for myself, right? I'm figuring out that, oh yeah, I overshot. I went too far to the left. I need to come back. But before I can work it out for myself, somebody's grabbed me because I'm clearly not meant to walk into the corner where there's nothing there. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's again, that like, just let me figure it out because in doing that, I've now learned that there's this corner over here to the left of the stairs that doesn't go anywhere. And I probably, you know, if I make that mistake again, I'll figure that out quicker. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of the balance of like, don't jump to rescue us give us some time yeah. to work the map. And then, yeah, when it seems like we're really frustrated, come go ahead and help. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And, and take that time to, um, like, I, I know, and I get it cause I'm a practical person too. I know it can be hard. You just want to get your grocery shopping done, <laughs> or you just want to get, you know, to the mall and cross that street but maybe take once a week and be and as a parent or as a caregiver or as a teacher and say, you know what, if this takes us three hours, this takes us three hours and we're just going to do it this week. And, and just have that one day where you can let the kid build that, build those concepts, cross that street, do those things because mm -hmm. the more they do it and the more they do independently, the better off they're going to be as adults as well. Um, well, just letting and, your child lead you'll see yeah. what they discover and what they didn't know. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I mean, this is how sighted people learn as well, right? I mean, sighted people aren't taught roots. Yes. I think it, it's part of development, but it's, it's not so much go to point A to from point A to point B. It's, you know, this is where something is <laughs> go find it kind of thing. At least that's the perception I get is that it's not so regimented um, from a sighted perspective. And I think, the same approach once, once the key concepts are built needs to be applied for blind people as well. Yeah. And it's not like sighted people don't get turned around, but I think, no. but I think the thing with us is, you know, you immediately see the cane, you immediately see the blindness and, and, and you know, that kind of, of course they're going to get turned around, kind of, kind of enters your head, you know, like I, I have ways I'll get to the stairs. I, 
I purposefully will make a, a, a square before I, before sometimes I get to the stairs and I'll have people yell out their, their windows to tell me to go a bit to the right. But again, as earlier to my point, if you don't veer off, you're not going to know what's around you for when you have to get lost. And I think, Sean, you just solidified my point when mm-hmm. you, you explain that. Experience, right? If you're never allowed to get lost. Like in mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. You learn how to problem solve. Oh, I used to be so afraid of getting lost. Oh, me too. And once you've been lost enough <laughs> and you, you, I mean, it's inevitable <laughs> if you're, if you're going to travel in the world. And especially if you're going to try new routes that you haven't had a mobility lesson with, you're going to get lost probably. And the best skill is, is being able to figure your way out of that. Right. Like having that confidence that, okay, worst case scenario, I get lost, but I know I've got some tools to figure it out. So I'm not, I'll be okay. And I think that's many kids are like, I know as I was a kid, like I would always be afraid of getting lost because for me, it was like, you need O&M so you don't get lost. Whereas O&M is so you can have the tools in your pocket to, to go anywhere you want to go. And, you know, fit, like you said, Kim, problem solve. Right. And I think that's, for me, that's where the fear of getting lost comes from. And, you know, I, I, I want that to change for, for kids who are, who are learning O&M at a young age. Patricia, are, does this mental mapping challenge impact like finding things in your fridge or in oh, your yeah. closet? Oh yeah. Okay. Uh, it, it, it extends beyond O&M. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's not just, it, I would say it's um, most evident in O&M. Mm-hmm. but it, it's orientation period. So it's just, you know, sometimes I'm afraid I'm going to turn on and yeah, you can feel like the heat coming out of the element, but sometimes I'll turn on an element. I'll go, wait, which element did I just turn on? Was it the, bu-? You, you know, like, yeah, it's every, yeah. It, it impacts every, any, any part of my life that has anything to do with spatial it's there. Right. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. That must take a lot of energy <laughs> to have to work through all that all the time. It does. Yeah. Um, you know, people say, you know, does it get any easier? Uh, no, you just become used to it. Mm-hmm. You're, you're just the, the, the mental load is just a constant and you, um, it's kind of like if you've ever been in pain and you leave it for a while, eventually you become more tolerant to that level of pain. So I think mm-hmm. I've, I've developed a, a, a relatively high tolerance um but again it changes so if i'm tired Mm -hmm. i the tolerance is a lot lower and my navigation and anything spatially related is a lot lower as well so um yeah it'll be very evident when i'm tired also to Ginny's point so for me it takes a lot of like i i have to be exclusively um focused on that particular thing that i'm doing um so that, that's kind of how it is in O&M for me. So um, like say Kim goes, okay, go find that tree at the end of the block. So I'll walk and, I'll, and all I'm thinking is tree, tree, look for the tree, look for the tree. Meanwhile, we could be going downhill and maybe going downhill was important, like an important thing that Kim mentioned a while back. Like you'll know you're at the tree when you go downhill. But all I'm thinking is tree, 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 where's the tree? And Kim might say, are you going downhill? 
and I'll be like, oh, yeah, I guess I am going downhill now that you pointed that out. But like, it, it won't even cross my mind. Yeah. Something that you posted, something about like you were a strong academic student and and this thing was like really frustrating. You know, you're a smart person. Yes. So why are you struggling so much? And just sort of realizing that this mental mapping is a separate thing from blindness. Oh, and it's yeah. a, a different challenge altogether. One that when you're blind, obviously is going to really impact your yeah. life, but oh, yeah. like how empowering it was for you to realize that, that you're not just like not a good blind person or not a good blind traveler. Like you are a really capable person. Yeah. And, and I think that's what makes it frustrating mm-hmm. is because you like, I, I see what my potential, I guess should be or could be, mm-hmm. but I don't know how to get there. Hence the feeling trapped in your own body. My own M instructor in elementary school would say things like you're spacing out. And I'm like, no, I, I, I just, I don't, I'm not understanding. I can't mm-hmm. process the information. Um, so one of the, the things that came up in the tech podcast was if you struggle with mental mapping, does this also mean that you're unable to, that you would struggle with technology and using a computer and all that kind of stuff? And Lil said, well, that would be a really interesting thing to investigate. And I thought about it. And I remember when I first got my iPhone and I was interacting with the screen, I struggled with that. But again, you're spatially interacting with the items on your screen. Mm-hmm. So understanding, I, I, I've been using a computer for years. I've been typing since I, for what, 25, 26 years. I literally had to come up with a different schema for the virtual key or for the iPhone keyboard. So I had two different concepts of a keyboard in my head. And I would Mm -hmm. balance those two until the iPhone keyboard became fluid in my head. Yeah, I kind of had that problem because the keyboard for a computer... Is, is bigger, right? <clears throat> and then when you when you have an iPhone or an iPad, the size changes. For me, that wasn't really my problem. For me with technology, it was <clears throat> people trying to tell me what a desktop layout looks like and I just couldn't couldn't see it. Or people trying to tell me, here's where the address bar is, here what here's what Google looks like and here's how what it's actually doing on the screen. And I just can't visualize that. So for me, it's in a little bit of a different sense, but I, I can, I can see that as well. Yeah. And I think for technology, it's different, right? Because yeah, especially from a computer perspective, it's, it's, again, it's memorization. It's not spatial memorization. It's you'll execute this command and this thing will happen. Mm-hmm. And this thing always happens. Whereas in space it's very unpredictable. Yeah. You can, you can flick until you find the app you're looking for. Eventually yes. you'll find it, even though yes. everyone else knows it's the top right corner and yes. might go there immediately. You're you'll still find it. And when you see audible or hear audible, yeah. you'll know what it is. Right. Like, yeah. 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 And, and from a computer perspective, it eliminates that whole spatial it does. concept altogether. So mm-hmm. for me, I was, I was, technology was easy for me. And my dad would say that too. He's like, how come you can use a computer like no other, but you can't navigate in space. And so that, that was always, or how come, like you said, how come you can be this academic student, but you can't cross the street. 
And I know you're a highly organized person, so that yeah. would be really confusing if you were then yes. having a hard time finding things, right? Like, but you're yeah. so organized. Why can't you find? Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I would get that question a lot as well. Yeah. 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 I'm, how, how come you can organize a folder structure, but you can't organize your clothes, that, that type of, right. but again, space. <clears throat> yeah. That makes sense. I'm so happy you connected with Lil and I'm so excited to see the result of this book she's writing and how it changes mobility. I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm over the moon about it. I, I hope that it creates something tangible mm-hmm. <laughs> considering this whole topic was talking about things that are inten- like intangible. Right. Uh, I, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you for being so open and, just sharing so personally about your experience, Patricia and Ginny. I think that'll really help people listening. Yeah, I, I think it's a, an important topic that doesn't get addressed very much. So the more I, if I can offer insights or if your kid is struggling with that same kind of thing and you wonder what's going on, this could be part of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Kim, if somebody wanted to uh, delve into the field of orientation and mobility and become certified, what, what could they do? Um, they could contact me. <laughs> <laughs> Currently, if you're in Canada and you're interested, we at University of British Columbia is the main English speaking game in town. Um, and there's two paths. You don't have to be, you don't have to have a background in visual impairment to become an orientation mobility specialist. You have to have a bachelor's degree. It could be at anything. And then there'd just be some prerequisite courses to take prior to starting the certificate if you don't have the background already in visual impairment, like courses, like you're a rehab specialist or a low vision specialist or something, then you might have the courses. But um, yeah, and then it's it's, um, 15 credit uh, graduate certificate and it ends in a 350 hour internship that you do um, under the supervision of a certified orientation mobility specialist. Then to become certified, you you take a nice little test <laughs> with the academy, um, and then you're off and running as no M specialist. There's also quite a, a few programs down in the United States as well that offer a variety of different um, hybrid programs versus online versus totally face to face. So there's some other options down there as well. And if you speak French, you can get a master's degree in RNM at the University of Montreal. And we do need more orientation and mobility specialists, don't we? We do. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's, it's such an important yeah. role. Like it's, need, yeah. Yeah. And we need more ag- advocacy for, for schools and special education administrators to understand that this is a developmental thing. And it's not just about getting an ONM specialist for a kid before they're leaving high school. That's mm-hmm. too late. You need, you have ongoing work on this and opportunities to explore and practice and, and learn these kind of orientation concepts over time. Definitely. Awesome. Thank you so much, all of you for being here. This, uh, I think this might be my favorite episode so far. (laughs) (laughs) You say that every time, Sean. No, I I don't. Do I? I don't know. You kind of do, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, but every time I record, it can be my new favorite. See, so it's still true. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for joining us today. I really, really appreciate you guys being here. You're welcome. Yeah, thanks.
You've been listening to Limitless, the Blind Beginnings podcast. I'm your host, Sean Marcelet. If you have a question, a comment, a future topic request, send us an email to limitless at blindbeginnings.ca. Give us a rating, share our podcast with a friend, and please join us next time. This podcast has been brought to you by Blind Beginnings, an organization based in Vancouver, Canada, that supports children and youth who are blind or partially sighted, along with their families. Music for this podcast is composed by Sean Bishop and Clement Chow. Production and audio editing by Rob Minot. For more information about Blind Beginnings and the work it does to support children and youth who are blind and partially sighted, along with their families, visit us on the web at www.blindbeginnings.ca and also remember to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We thank you for joining us and we look forward to seeing you next time.